Welcome to Amazing Horse Country. And thank you for tuning into the Amazing Horse Country podcast. I'm Scott Phillips. This episode is entitled, When Your Horse Is Right. When is your horse right? If your horse makes a decision when you're riding that is different than what you desire, are they wrong? Can they be wrong? Can you be wrong? In the following story, you'll notice that my horse Chip has many independent thoughts. In every case, they are valid to him. And as leaders, it is our duty to solicit and consider input from our followers. That doesn't necessarily mean we have to act on that input, but we do need to accept it. After this story, which is, by the way, the most production we've ever put into a podcast yet, so I hope you enjoy it, I'll dig into that topic, when your horse is right. Make sure you listen right to the end. We've got some great horsemanship tips in this one. I'd also like to introduce our new voice actor, Monique Noble. Monique is an award-winning photographer whose talent behind the lens developed with old-school film and darkroom technology. If you're in the Calgary, Alberta area and in need of photographic services, you can find Monique on Facebook at Starizen Images. That's S-T-A-R-I-Z-O-N Images. In addition to her talent behind the camera, Monique is a very gifted singer-songwriter so she's a natural fit when it comes to voice acting. We're looking forward to featuring Monique in future podcasts. Thanks for joining us. Some friends and I met up at Forest Creek an equestrian staging area west of Caroline, Alberta, not far from our ranch. We'd planned a trail ride as a sort of get-together. We had all ridden together at times in the past, but I'd moved to a different part of the province, and with everyone's work and families, well, we just didn't seem to get together often anymore. Hence, the trail ride was sort of a reunion. It was going to be fun. It was a cool October day in 2017. Or was it 2016? For some reason, the years in the story get all mixed up in my head. It was a brisk day, but sunny, and promised to be a warm one. Small puffs of cloud gathered around the mountaintops. Maybe there'd be rain later. Maybe not. The mountains make their own weather out here. The breeze in the morning carried a hint of, Winter is coming soon, in the air. And some Octobers can be full on winter, But we were being treated to a long fall. I like those. I had warm clothes anyway, but my long slicker was tied off behind my cantle, just in case. I was riding Chip that day, one of my geldings, and he would have been six or seven at the time. I brushed and saddled him, checked the contents of my saddlebags, made sure my truck was locked, and I mounted. Rounding my trailer, I joined up with my buddies and we rode down the short embankment to cross the creek and head down the trail. The campground wasn't that busy, and soon we were all well away from any other folk and enjoying the mountains uninterrupted. We circulated among each other, catching up on everyone's personal news, horses learning who they liked, and sometimes didn't like. The conversation drifted from topic to topic, as it usually does with folks that haven't chatted in some time. 
Eventually, it drifted to the political spectrum, and a light-hearted debate began. Never had that before, have ya? Honestly, I didn't have any interest in the subject. And Chip didn't either. <laughs> I felt him ease his pace as we slowly drifted to the back of the group. Soon, we were a few horse lengths behind. Eventually, we were much more than that. We were enjoying each other's company, and I was thinking that there are not too many things finer than a good horse, a good friend, that is, on a trail ride. My musing was interrupted as a call sounded from up around the corner. Scott, are you still there? Yeah, I answered. Just had to stop for a second, but we'll catch up. I lied. We'll wait for you on the other side of the river, I heard. I figured I was busted for being a loner. At that moment, I felt obliged to join the rest of the group. I hadn't seen them for a while, and here I was hanging out all by myself. Well, not really myself. Chip was, and still is, a pleasure to be with, and honestly, all the company I really need. But who knew when this group would be together again? I felt obligated to catch up and join the group. And Chip is a great horse for picking up intimately on my energy. I felt a bit excited, focused forward, and he picked up a nice smooth trot. I thought we'd stop by the river for a quick drink and then lope the rest of the way to the group. I turned the corner and expected to see the group heading down the trail, well past the other side of the river. I figured I was a bit behind. But there was no river. What? Chip stopped, picking up on my air of confusion. He wasn't sure where to go because, well, there was no more trail either. Not that it stopped abruptly, but just sort of, it wasn't there anymore. As I looked forward, I could see the trail become progressively infused with shrubs and trees until there just was no trail. What the heck? I called out to Kyle, the friend that had asked if I was still there. No answer. I focused to the right. Chip following my balance into a right bend as we turned around to face back the way we'd come. The trail was still there, but it wasn't the same trail we'd just ridden. It was a single winding track that crossed through a small open clearing. At the other side of that clearing, the trail entered the trees. In contrast to the bright meadow, the trail in the trees looked like an entrance to a cave. It was dark, much darker in there, but we had no other options. In all the directions I could see, the trees were too dense to ride through. I had no idea what had just happened. But I was more intrigued than anything else. Chip was relaxed. He wasn't picking up on any danger. We were under no discernible threat. We must have been lost, but how? We never once veered off the trail. It was more like we were just, well, misplaced. I hope that was temporary. I had a thought that maybe I'd come off Chip and hit my head on a rock or something. Maybe I was passed out. Who knew? Oh, I had a good idea. How about checking my GPS? I pulled it out of my saddlebag and I was surprised to see that it was telling me it was receiving a grand total of zero satellites. I held it up in front of me. We had an unobstructed view of the sky. I should be getting a signal. This was impossible. I turned it off and on again. Same thing. Useless. I tucked it away and considered my options. Or rather, my lack of options. 
There was only one trail in one direction, so we took it. When we entered the trees, it became darker. The dense forest blocked out an amazing amount of sunlight, and the temperature was much cooler. It must have dropped 5 or 10 degrees just as we entered the trees. I reached behind me as we rode on, untied my slicker and threw it over my shoulders. It gave me some degree of warmth and comfort, but a chill permeated the air, like we were being watched by icy eyes all around us. It was a little bit creepy, but it was cool and I swore I saw my breath. Thankfully, that dark trail didn't last very long. I thought it was more like a passage, like a tunnel, connecting one part of the forest to the other. I had no idea how I was both perfectly right and completely wrong at the same time. We emerged from the densest part of the trail into a small clearing, and right in front of us, what looked like an outfitter's log cabin, and a well-constructed one at that. Shutters on either side of small 12-pane windows, a handcrafted door with some weird-looking odd markings carved in it, a porch wrapped around the two sides of the cabin that I could see. I looked up and I saw a loft with a small window near the peak of the building. Someone had put a lot of effort into recreating a late 1800s-style cabin for a vacation home, apparently. Just then, Chip froze at a movement off to our right. A chicken! And I don't mean a prairie chicken. But a real honest-to-God chicken had just strutted out of sight behind the back of the cabin. Who the heck would have chickens on a vacation property? That's not much of a vacation. And how the heck did they have a vacation property on Crown Land? The more I thought about it, the more confused I became. I urged Chip to walk forward again, and his curiosity drew him around to the side of the house where we could see around the back. I was amazed. We were not able to see it from our previous vantage point, but there was a full-blown barn behind the house nestled right in the trees. Well, not a barn by our usual standards, but I could see inside the big front door. There were two horse stalls and tack hanging from the walls. A wagon was parked at the far end of the barn. An outfitter, maybe? But there would have to be more horses, more stalls, way more tack. Everything I saw pointed to people living here. It clearly wasn't a business. And there were horses too. Two big bay horses in a large pen, of which one wall was the barn, had their noses buried in the grass, chowing down. Chip nickered. But neither horse answered. This was really weird. I heard a clatter from the house and I turned toward it. I got off Chip then, putting my reins over the saddle horn. With my Makati tucked in my belt, I walked cautiously toward the house. Chip following by my side, but tentative in his steps. I stopped when I saw the front door. I thought of turning around right there and taking off. What had looked like ornate carvings from a distance were scratches, claw marks. The door was deeply raked with them. Some looked like bites even. And it was fresh. There were splinters of wood all over the porch beside the door. As I turned to leave... The door was abruptly jerked open. Slowly, I twisted back to face the door, and a rifle was pointed right at my head. 
Standing behind that rifle was a man about my height with short, dark hair and a kind but inquisitive face that hadn't been shaved in a couple of weeks. He was wearing coveralls over a dark, what looked like wool, sweater with a tall neck on it. My first thought was how uncomfortable that must have been. He didn't look uncomfortable though, he looked confident. Like pulling the trigger wouldn't have been a great big deal for him. Right then, Chip bumped me. Say something, he seemed to be telling me. So I said the first thing that came to my mind. Nice gun. What? The man asked. Your rifle. That's a nice gun. Is it a Marlin? And I meant it. It was nice. The style was positively outdated, but it looked new. I mean, everything about it said vintage, but I couldn't see a mark or a stain on it. Why would he be using an antique that was in that good of shape? The thought crossed my mind that it should be in a museum. Things just weren't jiving here. Indeed it is, he said. The tone of his voice said, what of it? I answered, I have a Marlin too. Good rifle. He seemed to relax at that and the tension in his face softened somewhat. And he glanced at the scabbard on my saddle. He was probably realizing that my only weapon was out of reach and he had a clear advantage. Nodding his head toward my horse, he said, What model? I was thinking he was talking about Chip, and I was about to say, He's a horse. But before I could, Chip nickered and turned his head around to touch the butt of my rifle, preventing my sarcastic remark from leaving my mouth. It's an 1895, I said. You got good taste, he said gruffly, lowering his weapon. What brings you down this trail? He emphasized the word this like there was something unique about the trail I'd arrived on and that perhaps I should have been on a different trail. I wasn't sure what to say, so I ventured. I was out riding with some friends and I seemed to have gotten sidetracked. I had no idea there was anyone living here. We try to avoid being around others. At the mention of we, I looked over his shoulder to see a woman and a young girl. His wife and daughter, I assumed. When I saw how they were dressed, I thought I'd stumbled upon some historical reenactment. Sensing my confusion, Chip pawed the ground softly to get my attention before I opened my mouth to say something stupid. Suspicion still hung heavy in the air, and this wasn't the time to joke around, or inadvertently insult his family. So instead, I said, My name is Scott Phillips, and this is Chip. At that, Chip sighed clearly happy with my choice of response. I offered a handshake. The fellow hesitated and then took my hand. I'm Ernest, and this is my wife Bessie, and our daughter Carrie. She's six. Sorry for the rude greeting, but we don't see folks around here, and you did sneak up on us. We shook hands. I noted that he didn't offer last names. But I didn't want to focus on the reasons why that might be the case. Also, I didn't sneak up on them, and I was a bit insulted by the insinuation, but I kept my mouth shut. Bessie and Carrie exited the house and walked closer up behind him, and I got a good look at his wife. She was strikingly beautiful, with chiseled features. Although her dress was plain, she struck me as upper class, and strong. She carried herself in a very proud way. 
She was clearly one of those people that owned the space around them and knew it. Good afternoon, Mr. Phillips. She stated in such a way that didn't prompt a response. She stepped forward to stand beside her husband, daughter in hand. I felt Chip take a step back, his tension immediately obvious. I gently touched the lead and relaxed, urging Chip to do the same. And that was difficult because there was something really odd about Bessie. Not only her sharp features, but her eyes. They were a brilliant grey that somehow glowed when the light hit them, just like a cat's eyes do when they reflect light. I'd never seen anything like it before, and I was taken aback. Before I could ask where she found such great contact lenses for Halloween, Chip blew and pawed. Maybe he's hungry, Bessie said slowly, emphasizing and drawing out the word hungry in a way that made me shiver. And Mr. Phillips, you must be famished as well. I'm just about to put dinner on the table. You really must join us. Yes, yes, said Ernest. How remiss of me. Let's put up your horse and sit down. Consider yourself our guest. Ernest led me around to the back of the house toward the barn. The horses continued grazing and didn't pay Chip any attention. Almost like they didn't realize there was a horse walking up to them. Chip ignored them too. Ernest said, Let's put Chip in with my horses. It doesn't look like they're too interested in each other anyway. But Chip wouldn't have it. He jerked his head toward the barn, clearly indicating his preference. Looks like he has other ideas, Ernest said. I led Chip to a tie stall in the barn and Ernest forked some hay in front of him. Probably a better thing he's in here anyway. I wasn't sure if he meant that we'd prevent scraps with his horses or something else. I didn't ask. And Chip didn't waste any time sticking his face in the grass hay and chowing down. Clearly whatever spooked him in front of the house was no longer on his mind. That was good. I won't bore you with the details of dinner. But I will say it was odd because we ate in complete silence. The meal though, a thick and spicy stew with fresh bread, was incredible. I don't spend a lot of time cooking for myself, so a good home-cooked meal is a rare and almost welcome delicacy. I kept my head down and I ate politely. Of course I took seconds. When Ernest got up, I followed his lead and gave Bessie my compliments on the stew. I meant it wholeheartedly. Striding to a shelf set high on the wall, Ernest took a briar pipe and tobacco jar back to the table that Carrie had cleared off. This tobacco jar was ornate. Again, it was something like you'd see in an antique store and probably pay a lot of money for. And it looked relatively new. Filling his pipe, he lit it with a stick he ignited in the fire. Pipe going well. Ernest asked me where I was from. I said that I was from Spruce View. He eyed me suspiciously. Clearly, he hadn't heard of it. I answered quickly, thinking of larger communities around. Not far from Rocky Mountain House, I said. He offered a slow nod of recognition at that as he puffed on his pipe. From there, our conversation was... How would I put it? 
Like a conversation you'd have when you think talking is required, but you don't really want to delve into anything remotely meaningful. I felt leery about getting into too much detail. Lest I betray the fact I had no idea where I was or what I was doing here. In turn, Ernest and Bessie deflected every personal question with short, curt responses. We talked about horses, the weather, tack, hunting, just about everything but ourselves. And I was oddly thankful for that, like we both needed to keep something hidden. When Ernest had finished his pipe, he tapped it out over the fire in an announcement that the conversation was over. As if to emphasize that, he cleared his throat and spoke. We don't have room in the house for you to stay the night, but you're more than welcome to the barn. It was dark already, and let's face it, I had no idea where I was or what the heck was really going on. I figured my best bet was to just go with it. The barn is perfect, I said. Thanking them for their hospitality, I strode outside. Outside, a crisp, clear night greeted me. The stars were brilliant. The forest glowed a yellow hue in the light from a full moon. As I strode toward the barn, I suddenly felt eyes on my back. Glancing behind me, I saw Bessie in a window of the house, not more than 10 feet from me, but she was more of a silhouette, hauntingly backlit by the flames of the fire. Those luminous eyes again, even though I couldn't see the details of her face, the eyes seemed to glow. And was that a hint of yellow in them now? It must be the moonlight, I thought. Tentatively, I raised my hand and waved slowly, but she didn't respond in kind. Shrugging my shoulders, I turned and entered the barn, closing the door behind me. It was a good thing that we had a full moon. Otherwise, the barn interior would have been pitch black. I checked on Chip. He was resting contentedly with ample food and water. I sat down on a stool beside Chip, intending to pull my boots off, but then I looked back at the barn door. It had a latch on the inside. I'm not sure why being able to lock a barn from the inside was part of the builder's criteria, but I was still a bit creeped out after seeing Bessie in the window. I walked over to the barn door and latched it. Standing there, I couldn't help but feel that feeling you get when you know someone is near. It sounds weird, but it was like there was someone right on the other side of the door. Like I could sense their heat, their breath. I crept back from the door, still facing it, acutely conscious now of any noise I was making. Slowly I turned and walked back to the stool, sat down and pulled off my boots. I looked at Chip and said, For some reason, I don't think I'm going to get much sleep tonight, buddy. I hung my hat on a nail in the barn, and using my slicker as a blanket, I curled up in the hay. I felt comforted with Chip only a few feet from me. You'll wake me up if something weird happens, right? I asked him. Chip stared back at me for a few seconds, then relaxed and lowered his head. Good boy. We'll figure this one out tomorrow. Surprisingly, I fell asleep almost immediately. I figured I was asleep for about two hours, 
when I was abruptly jolted awake with a howl that seemed to shake the barn itself. I was on my feet instantly. Coyotes, I thought at first, having listened to them every night for years. But this was no coyote. Much louder. And there was only one. No group of howls. And no answering howl was returned. You know how when you hear a wolf or coyote howl from a distance, there's a bit of an echo? A bit of reverb, I guess? And that bit of echo tells you that the sound is far off? Well, there was no echo here. Whatever it was, it was close. And now, silence. Silence full of expectation for another howl. Or worse. Normally, I'd have passed that off as paranoia and gone back to sleep. But one look at Chip changed that plan right away. He was almost standing on his toes. His head was high, his eyes wide in fear. I expected him to blow any minute, but he didn't. My horses don't even pick up their heads when coyotes run underneath them in the pasture. They couldn't care less. This was something else. I stroked his neck, looked him right in the eyes, and said, It's okay, bud. We're safe in here. Right then, there was a loud bang on the door, followed by a raking sound. I jumped. In my mind, I pictured giant claws scratching at the door and wood splinters flying all over. It was a tactic clearly meant to intimidate us. Chip started to pull back, but thanks to our training, he realized that putting slack in the rope and relaxing was the right answer. He was okay where he was, but to be safe and let him move, I took his halter off and let him free. He stood his ground, and he was silent except for his rapid breathing. I hustled over to my saddle, aware of my rapidly beating heart, yanked my Marlin 4570 from its scabbard and I chambered around. With no other sounds, the mechanical action of my rifle was about as unnoticeable as someone shouting in a library. Whatever was outside the door would have heard it, loud and clear. I stood at attention, ready to pull the trigger if that door burst open. But it didn't. I felt something on my neck and I almost jumped before I realized it was Chip. He had sauntered up behind me and put his nose over my shoulder. His whiskers were touching my neck. That was somewhat of a comfort. We were a team, after all, and we stuck together. Now, whatever was on the other side of that door must have been smart enough to understand that the sound of me working my rifle was a threat. That meant I wasn't, how should I put it, simply food for the taking. It knew I would stand up for myself. Minutes ticked by. Nothing. I had asserted myself and survived the night, I thought. I didn't think the threat would return, so I returned to my hay bed and retired for the rest of the night. But this time, with my rifle across my chest. Chip was still loose, and I was okay with that. As I drifted back to sleep, I felt Chip lie down beside me, his nose touching my arm. As a baby, Chip slept on my lap, and on many an occasion... He'd lie down beside me and rest his head on me. As a grown horse, I took great comfort in knowing he could follow my feel here as well. I was relaxed 
and therefore he could relax. I also took solace in knowing he was right next to me. I reached my arm out and stroked his neck. The last thing I thought about before I gave in to sleep was how Chip had indicated he needed to be in the barn, and thus both of us were together now. If he wouldn't have been in the barn, he'd not have signaled me about the imminent threat. Who knows what would have happened? What if I'd been alone and gone to sleep? What if it had attacked Chip? Morning was announced by the rooster crowing and a barn cat standing on my chest, poking at my nose. Chip was back in his stall eating breakfast. I myself felt a gnawing hunger in my stomach. What time was it? I pulled my phone out of my pocket. I hadn't thought of my phone until this point. It showed 53% charge, but the little icon on the top of the screen indicated there was no cell signal. Not a surprise, as there was no cell signal in the mountains anyway. Nevertheless, it was 7.35 a.m. Normally, I'm up earlier, so I'd slept in. Good for me. I stood up, brushing bits of hay off me. I put Chip's halter back on and tied him up. He continued to eat, unperturbed. I unlatched the door and strode out of the barn. Sunrise, according to my phone, was at 8.05 a.m., and the day was just beginning. As I was exiting the barn, Ernest was exiting the house. Good morning, I hailed. Ernest ignored my greeting, and he stated tersely, I need your help. Bessie's missing. He held Carrie's hand, a worried look on her face. What can I do? When did you see her last? The words were out of my mouth before I stopped them, and I instantly regretted insinuating that he didn't know when his own wife had left his bed but he didn't take it as an offense. I woke up this morning, and she was gone. I looked around the yard. Nothing. Did Carrie see anything? I asked. For the first time since I'd seen her, Carrie spoke. Mom woke me up when she ran out of the house. She ran? I asked. Did she say anything to you? No. I woke up because she was trying to get the door open, like she had to get out right away. When she said this, Ernest just stared at the ground. He knew more than he was sharing. Let's saddle up, Ernest commanded. I had no choice but to comply. We're going on a mission, I said to Chip as I ran into the barn. I quickly brushed him, tossed on the pad and saddle, and ran out the door. I thought I was fast at saddling a horse, but Ernest was ready and waiting his daughter sitting in the saddle in front of him. He didn't say a word and reined his horse off to the right. I followed. We broke into a trot right away. It's odd sometimes, the thoughts that cross into your mind in anxious situations. At that moment, I couldn't help but think what a comfortable trot Chip had. I could ride it all day. I wondered how long I'd be in this place. How long would we be trotting here? The trail Ernest followed took us into higher terrain. The soft forest floor gave way to the rockiness of the mountain we were climbing. I called out, Where are we going? I didn't get an answer, and honestly, I didn't expect one. I had no idea where he thought we were off to, but he seemed to have a destination in mind. 
He wasn't searching. He was heading somewhere specific. What would cause his wife to run up a mountain in the middle of the night? It didn't make any sense to me at all. Were we actually looking for her? That thought dissipated as the trail shrunk to a single track and we climbed above the tree line. The view of the valley below us was spectacular. I'll have to admit, I'm not a fan of walking along a cliff edge, but that's exactly what we were doing. I trusted Chip, kept out of his way, and just let him follow. The path curved around the open face of a mountain and settled gently into a small flat area in the shade of the mountain, covered in moss and rock. At the far side of this little meadow, if you could even call it a meadow, was a cave. It wasn't big, a craggy thing. Not like a bored out mining hole, but a crack, about four feet wide and it was on a diagonal. Large rocks were strewn outside of the entrance, like they'd been tossed out of the way for their inconvenience. The sooty remains of a campfire contrasted with the greens and yellows of the ground around us. Did someone live here? How had Ernest known to come here? I had too many questions and too few answers. We dismounted, and Ernest told Carrie to hold the horse and not to move. As we walked toward the cave mouth, I almost tripped. Looking down, I saw I had stepped on a bone. One of many bones. They were strewn about the area, like they had been hurled to the side with careless abandon. But they were big bones. I didn't know what species they were from. Were they human? Animal? I urged Chip to come forward with me, but he wouldn't budge. Not one inch. Turning to him, I thought, What is up with you? I didn't pull on him, of course. But the look in his eye said very clearly, We stop here. I trusted him, and I stopped as well. Ernest, I think that's far enough, I called, but he ignored me covering the distance to the cave entrance quickly in long, purposeful strides. Just then, I saw gray-yellow eyes in that cave, like a hibernating beast had just awakened and opened its eyelids. Those eyes moved, and they looked at us. Chip moved up beside me so the stirrup was right by my leg. He pawed at the ground. I could take a hint. I called out to Carrie, Get on! and I saw her mount their gelding as I swung my leg over Chip's back. Chip didn't wait for a cue. We were off at a gallop. I just hung on. I heard a loud growl at the same time I heard Ernest and his daughter clamber down the trail behind me. At least, I hope Ernest was on the horse. We moved. Grabbing the reins and the saddle horn in one hand, I turned around to look behind me. What I saw gave Chip the energy to move even faster. A great brown and gray wolf was right on Ernest's tail. And by great, I mean huge. Its paws must have been the size of my head, or even bigger. A look of absolute rage was on its face, and it sprung off the ground, covering distance in huge leaps. I could even see spittle flying from its gaping mouth as it swung its head toward me, locking those grey-yellow eyes right on mine. That was all I needed. I turned forward and put all the energy I had into Chip and just let him go. And go he did. 
Even on the precipitous cliff edge, Chip's footing was sure and solid. He bounded forward in a burst of speed I had no idea that he even possessed. I would never again call Chip a lazy horse. The beast must have soon tired because within a minute or two, I heard an angry howl well behind us. The same howl I'd heard during the night, or at least I thought. That was followed up by a tumultuous crashing through the trees. Maybe it had wiped out. I almost chuckled before realizing that would make it even angrier. Chip and I slowed to a trot as Ernest and Carrie caught up to us. I turned to Ernest and I said, You need to tell me what's going on here. Just as the words left my mouth, we heard a loud crack from our right, up the side of the hill. And just after that, another enraged growl. The thing hadn't quit following us. It didn't wipe out. It had dove right off the cliff into the trees, and it was running straight down the hill and toward us instead of taking the switchback trail that we'd taken. We'd been outsmarted. I wanted to gallop straight ahead, but Chip would have none of it. I could tell he wanted to head off to the right, off the trail and down the steep slope. But it was full of deadfall. I focused left, but he was adamant we should be heading right. I took his lead this time. I put him in a right bend and we ducked off the trail. Just before we rode off into the protective cover of some towering spruce trees, I saw, off to my left, the beast landing on all fours and it was staring back down the trail, looking for us. It landed just where Chip and I would have been if I'd made him go forward. Chip was right again. I gave Chip the reins and he leapt and bounded through the trees, giving me lots of room around the trunks and making sure not to duck under branches that would have taken me off. The river was ahead. I could see it through the brush and it was curving away from us. I had a good feeling that with a fast-moving river like that with a twist in it, there would be a good undercut on the bank, and if we hit that, we'd be done for. Chip, left, now! I hollered as I picked his left shoulder up with my leg, touched the rein, and sat on my hind. He spun over to the left, following my body balance with practice precision, and took a game trail that paralleled the river. I had no idea where Ernest and Carrie were. I wasn't about to start yelling and bring attention to myself. I just hoped they were okay and that they made it off the trail. My heart slowly wound down to a normal beat and Chip took a deep breath and let it out. I gave him a pat on the neck. He'd shown me teamwork at its best, trust at its deepest. I had a sense of where we were and soon a branch of the trail opened up heading up from the river. We took it and emerged right at the cabin. Ernest was already there with his horse and daughter. They didn't appear to be winded or panicked. Again, I said to Ernest, You really need to tell me what's going on here. He just stared at the ground in front of us. I decided to give him time to gather his thoughts. I focused my attention on Chip. He was sweaty and tired, but he'd calmed down. And he had saved us, saved me, again. What if I'd ignored him and he'd gone closer to the cave? What if I'd pushed him down that trail? I might not have made it back. As it stood, 
I had no idea how Ernest had made it home without being attacked. I heard Ernest come up behind me. I found this by the cave. He held up a red and black jacket. It belongs to my friend Travis. He's been missing for a week. I saw it in the mouth of the cave, and I had to grab it. I, I had to know. I didn't know what to say, so I just stared silently at him, hoping my penetrating gaze would coax the truth out of him. He caught my meaning. I don't know how to tell you what's going on, but for your sake, for your life, you best head back where you came from, right now. Are you going to be okay, Ernest? I asked. Yes, this has happened before. We live out here for a reason. Okay, I'll head out. Thanks for putting Chip and me up for the night. Take care. With that, I turned to the barn to collect my saddlebags and belongings. I pulled the door open and I strode inside. Immediately, I realized I'd made a grave mistake. I knew I wasn't alone. I could feel it even before the barn door was slammed shut behind me. Before I even had a chance to move, my arm was yanked and I was pulled around. Its grip was solid, tight, and I yelped in pain. I felt claws dig into my skin and I could feel droplets of blood trickle down my arm. I was face to face with, with Bessie, Ernest's wife. Flecks of yellow danced in her gray eyes. She smiled at me. You know too much. I really should finish you right here. My only hope was a feeble plea. Bessie, I'm not from here. Not from this place. I don't think I'm even from this time. You know that. When I leave, I'll be gone for good. It was all I could come up with. She stared at me for what seemed like a full minute before thrusting me roughly away. I stumbled and fell backwards. I was more than aware I was at her complete mercy. Be gone, she said, turning and walking out of the barn. Why should I trust that you're not going to hunt me down when I leave? I asked at her back, angry now. Without turning around, she said, Look at your arm. I can't hurt you now. I looked down at my arm. Where I was certain she'd rip me with her claws, there was dried blood, but no markings. No swelling, no pain, no torn skin. I didn't hesitate. I grabbed my gear and left the building. No one was outside. I didn't know if the family was in the house or where they were, and I honestly didn't care either. Strapping my saddlebags on Chip, I swung a leg over and we headed down the trail, the same trail I'd arrived on the previous day. I can't say that I trusted Bessie or understood what she was talking about, but somehow I knew, and so did Chip, that we were not being followed and we were not going to be attacked. I had a lot to think about, a lot to process, but now things were making sense. As loath as I am to superstition, I knew without a doubt that Bessie was a werewolf, and that even when she'd changed under the full moon, 
she retained enough of her human intellect to protect her own family from her wolf. A family living so remotely for two reasons. One, to hide, and two, to protect other people from Bessie. Chip was tired, and he was pacing slowly, and I was exhausted as well. It wasn't even noon, but the day had been long and much too exciting. I have to admit it. I dozed off while riding my horse. I don't think I was asleep for more than a few seconds. One of those micro-sleeps, or whatever they're called. Like nodding off, but the nodding off part lasts for a little bit longer. But somehow, even after those moments, I felt refreshed. Like I'd had the best sleep in the world. But I was concerned for Chip. I asked him to stop, and I got off. He moved to the side of the path to graze on some tall mountain grass for a moment. And then he too closed his eyes. He was taking a little snooze, just like I had felt the need to. I loosened the saddle, and while doing so, I noticed a patch of dry blood on his flank. But again, no cut. It mustn't have been his blood, I surmised. But then, whose was it? With a sigh of resignation, I realized I had no idea what we were going to do. I did not know what path led home and how we were going to get there. But for some reason, those thoughts seemed trivial. I didn't seem to care. And at that, I was puzzled. And I laughed. Just then, I heard a call from around the bend on the trail ahead of me. Scott, are you coming or what? Kyle, one of the friends I'd started the ride with. Was I back in my own time? The tone of Kyle's voice, which was full of annoyance, but no panic told me that I'd only been gone a few minutes at best, at least in his mind. Without thinking, I called back. Just go on, I'm catching up. Still looking down the trail, I felt a touch on the back of my neck. It was Chip. He gave me a little bump and walked up beside me. I put a foot in the stirrup and I hopped up on him with a renewed energy. I casually registered the fact that the knee I'd been meaning to see the dock about was no longer aching when I mounted. Right on. Chip and I quickly caught up to the rest of our group. And this time, I decided to join in the conversation. We rode the rest of the day and enjoyed the company of our friends. The day exhausted, trails explored and pictures taken, our group returned to the staging area. Back to our trucks, our trailers, and our normal lives. As we crested the last hill, the trees opened up to the clearing where we had parked that morning and revealed a beautiful moon rising in front of us. It hung low on the horizon. A full moon. What they call a supermoon. As the giant yellow-orange orb rose before us, I felt a surge of strength within me. A hunger, a yearning to run, to be free. And I could feel, underneath me, in my horse, my trusted friend, that Chip felt it too.
Let's start this off with a hypothetical, or maybe not so hypothetical situation. You're riding your horse, and you want to turn left, but your horse turns right. Was your horse wrong to do that? I'll bet you answered that question in your head almost immediately after I asked the question, didn't you? In this podcast, we're going to dig into what is really happening in your horse's mind and how we can work with that to achieve a consistently positive outcome for both of you. Thinking about that question, what your answer to that question was, was your horse right or wrong, depends on how you typically conduct yourself in potentially confrontational situations. There are generally three different responses when you get into a situation like that. Let's just look at them. The first concept is obedience. The response is, the horse is wrong and is ignoring me. Therefore, the horse requires training, tuning up or tuning in, reprimand, etc. The second concept is acceptance. The response would be, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Just laugh about it and move on. The third concept is failure. The response is, I blame myself. It has to be my fault. What am I doing wrong? Do you fall into one of those categories? What would you do? What should we do? We're going to chat about a fourth option. Before we do that, let's start by looking at an indisputable fact. That fact is, whatever your horse does, they have a reason for doing it. So in their mind, it is the right thing. A horse's mind, and then their body, if left to follow a thought, will be drawn to the highest pressure. That might be a gait, their buddy, or running in fear from something. Here's my thought. You're both right. You have a good reason for wanting to go left, and your horse has a good reason for wanting to go right. If, in your mind, the horse is wrong, then you're having a conversation breakdown. This is no different than having a disagreement with a person and you choosing not to see things their way. And choosing to see things their way lets you understand how their point is valid to them. Let's touch on conversation. What is the most important trait of a good conversationalist? That's right, being a good listener. We've all been told that before. In addition to that, one of the most important jobs of a good leader is causing our followers to want to follow us. So the solution then, our fourth option that is, is a combination of those two things. One of the biggest blunders we can make, and believe me, I've made this mistake a million times, is not listening to the horse. It happens. You might be on a trail ride with some buddies and you're focused on your conversation more than you are your horse. They might be giving you subtle signs, but you're not picking them up because you're fixated on your friend's tale of Facebook drama. The good thing, though, is that we can remedy this easily. The horse has a simple language that doesn't take us long to learn, if, that is, we commit to learning it. Let's look at our example again. We desire a left turn. For that to be successful... We need the following. 1. 
Knowledge of where our horse's mind is. If they are under pressure, thinking of escape routes, thinking of their buddy, or just about anything else, then one fact is clear. They are not thinking of following our focus. And two, we must present a focus that the horse can follow in the first place. If we don't provide something for them to follow, then we're no longer leading. And if we're not leading, it should be no surprise that our horses do what they want. And in my mind, they're justified to do that. Learning to communicate in the language of the horse is a prerequisite to riding, training, and coaching. What I've found is that factual knowledge of the horse's body and mind generally don't find their way into conventional horse and rider training. We're taught a lot about what to do, but seldom are we taught how what we're doing affects the horse's mind and body. Without knowledge, horses are washed out of training programs because they're misunderstood. Riders become frustrated. We might be tempted to blame the horse or blame the trainer. One very important aspect of leadership, however, is the acceptance of responsibility. As a leader, it's our job to help and support, not to assign blame. It's also our job to learn. No one is born with an understanding of the horse. Many of us were taught, squeeze to go, pull one rein to turn, and pull both reins to stop. We were never required to take a course on how horses think or how their bodies work. I've come to realize that those are the most important parts of riding, of horsemanship, because once we have that understanding, we can make sense of everything the horse does. And when the horse makes sense, we can work with them in a supportive, not a punitive way. We can advance our riding skills exponentially by learning a few subtle things. And, like horses, humans are also able to change the way we handle pressure and frustration. Here's a little selfmanship test for you. If you were having a conversation with another person and they disagreed with you, what would you do? Some of us will start getting tense right away. And while the other person is speaking, we're likely formulating a defense of our own opinion. Some of us will cut the person off because we're offended. Some of us will pause. We'll realize that the other person believes in their ideas just as strongly as we believe in ours. Some of us will really listen and try to understand. Some will simply leave the conversation. And some of us will instantly agree with the other person for fear of offending them. Think about what you would do, or what you've done in the past. Your answer is important here. How you handle differences in opinion is your personal style. You'll apply it all the time when talking to customers, working with horses, and practically everywhere else. If you choose to be offended or become defensive with a person, or if you always defer to the opinion of others, you will likely do the same with horses. This is because over time, we program ourselves to respond the same way when similar situations present themselves. Here's a little psychology piece for you. Taking offense is actually something you can be chemically addicted to. So is assigning blame to yourself and others, 
or feeling sorry for yourself. In your brain, this is similar to a thrill-seeking rush. When we are about to experience pleasure or thrill, dopamine is released in the brain. This tells your brain, hey, get ready, this is about to be good. What actually causes the pleasure is another process, but that's out of the scope of this discussion. All we need to understand right now is that it's easy to program our brain for a chemical high when we are feeling sorry for ourselves, acting in danger, or becoming defensive. Think about this. Have you ever knowingly told a lie? And don't lie here. We all have at one time. Remember that feeling that you get though? It's a chemical high, a rush. Am I going to get away with it? And it is addictive. Let's put this into a practical perspective and look at a solution to it. Here's the scenario. You are accompanying your friend to the dealer to look at a new truck. Your friend says, Wow, I love the look of these new 2020s. But you don't love the new trucks. You have a 2015 that you think looks better and you can't help feeling that your friend has just insulted your truck. So what do you do? You'll feel that dopamine trigger coming on. It's what precipitates that rush. Now, here is a great opportunity to practice your horsemanship, your selfmanship. Break that pattern. Stop the rush by taking a deep breath. Smile and refocus. And now, as hard as this might be, listen to acknowledge and validate what your friend said. You don't have to agree with your friend in order to do this. You'll find when you do this, you'll also get a chemical response, but you'll feel good about what you said and feel good about how it positively affected your friend. With practice, your response will change without you even thinking about it. And you will become a better leader, a more trusted friend, and a better horse person. So something you could say in this situation might be, you have a great point. They sure have made some big changes. You're validating what your friend said, but not really disagreeing or agreeing. And honestly, it's not our job to convince other people of our opinions. Our friends already know what we think. We can acknowledge their opinion and validate it, but we never have to argue. So practice this. Don't shy away from situations that might make you angry or opinionated. Instead, seek them. Practice asking others for their opinion, acknowledging, and validating. Outside of our horse lives, we are presented with daily opportunities to practice selfmanship. Go for it! By now, you should be thinking about how this relates to horse riding. So, let's get back to our original example. If you have provided an energetic focus for your horse, and your horse is indicating an opposing or different idea, but has not yet taken action, then the following statements are true. Your horse knows what direction you are asking well before you consider the rein as an option. There is a pressure drawing your horse to the right. This could be a number of things from a desire to get back to the gate, because that's where we stop, or a buddy calling, etc. 
And your horse is in a position to choose one of two options, follow you or follow their own thought. We know that the horse's mind has a singular focus and that focus will be on the highest pressure in any given moment. So who is right? How are you going to get your horse to turn left without an argument? I've given lots of hints so far. Have you figured out the solution? Before we talk about it, I'd just like to let you know that there is a printed version of this article on our website. You can go to AmazingHorseCountry.com and click on Articles, or simply go to Articles.AmazingHorseCountry.com. When you get there, search for an article called When Your Horse is Right. In that article, there's a video of me working with my horse Spud, and we're demonstrating exactly the same things that we're talking about. I think we may have even got left and right correct in the example. So check that out when you have some time. Let's get back to our original dilemma. <laughs> we're riding our horse, we're planning a left turn, our horse starts to, or has already, turned to the right instead. What to do? Well, here's what works for me. Let's look at the situation through three possible scenarios. Number one, the horse has already turned right. Sorry, too late. Even though we may not have picked up on it, our horse's thought of turning right was there well before they actually turned, and we missed the cue. That's our leadership error, and not their fault, so we can't reprimand for that. Not that we reprimand in our style of horsemanship anyway. Instead, we support. But that's entirely another podcast. In this case, we make our horse's turn our turn. Since the horse has already turned right, we assume leadership of the right turn. So, when the horse turns right, in our head we can be thinking, Ah, didn't think about that buddy, let's work on a balanced right turn. So you can take over it and make it a good thing. Then, we're going to repeat the exercise and note the point where the horse was drawn to the right. And now, on to step two. Number two. We feel our horse being drawn or pulled to the right, but they haven't committed yet. If the horse had previously turned to the right, like they did in step one, then we present a forward-focused energy to the left with greater intensity and clarity than we did the first time. We must be looking forward in the direction we want to go and not at our horse. If our energetic direction outweighs the pressure drawing our horse away, done, he'll turn left. If that isn't enough, then we're going to proceed to step three. All right, in step three, thinking about the last step, we will sense or see our horse's focus change from following our path to their desired path to the right. The moment that happens, we need to signal our horse to follow us. When a horse has a thought that turns into action, it happens in this order. Their mind, their eye, their head, then their body. So we want to catch this at the mind stage. If we wait until the head or body have turned, we're back to step one already. 
To correct this, this is what we do. Before we pick up a rein, we need to signal our horse to follow our focus to the left. That might be as simple as a tap with your foot, a cluck, a tap with a crop, or if you need to create a larger pressure, waving a flag. I wouldn't do that until your horse is cool with flags and they understand that pressure means focus on you. But basically, what we're doing here is getting their attention back on us. That's no different than you standing in front of a group of people at a podium to make a speech and they're all chatting and no one's paying attention to you. And if you start speaking, they still don't pay attention to you. So you clap your hands or whistle and they all shut up and turn and look at you. So you're just coming in with a little bit more pressure than the pressure of their conversations and that changes their focus back to you. So we're doing the same thing on our horse. And again, the reason this happens is fairly easy to understand, and it's based on a known principle of how the horse thinks. And that is, the horse is drawn to the highest pressure. It's a prey animal survival instinct. Your horse is turning right, or thinking of turning right, because what is over there is a higher pressure than your current focus or your current presentation. If we have done our job in teaching a horse that pressure means release and follow me, then adding a subtle pressure to signal our horse in those moments will cause them to release their other thought and change to following our focus. One side note here. I have to be very, very clear. This works great only when your horse understands that pressure is a cue to release and follow you. At Amazing Horse Country, we teach this as a basic function of our leadership in all our clinics and lessons. It is a fundamental, primary, and immensely powerful tool in your horsemanship toolkit. Please check out our Following Under Pressure video series to learn all about it. It's available on our website, and there's over six hours of video in that series, and we get right into these pieces. Just check it out. You'll be glad you did. Our intention is that we produce a horse that can follow our energetic focus so we are not reduced to steering them with the reins like a mindless robot. When we're only using reins to steer, the truth is that we're attempting to control the horse because we haven't yet mastered communication with them, nor established the leadership or trust required for them to follow us. The good news is that those things are quite basic, they don't take that long to learn, and they're not that difficult. Energetic direction is a primal communication method that horses use continually. All we need to do is polish our ability to speak it. So head out with your horse and give that a shot. Be mindful of where their focus is going and work at changing their focus and really presenting a focus of your own for them to follow. You'll find that things really start to come together for you. Your horse trusts and follows you more. You develop more confidence. And as a team, you feel more connected. It's fantastic stuff.
Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Why not join us? Become a patron and a member of Amazing Horse Country. We'd be glad to have you. Membership levels include early access to podcasts, our member-only forum, lots of Amazing Horse Country swag, participation in our live webinars, and even one-on-one training with me, Scott Phillips. Membership plans start for as little as $5 Canadian per month, and those go a long way to helping us provide podcasts, videos, and more for all you fantastic horse people. Give it some thought. Again, we'd love to have you join us. Just head to AmazingHorseCountry.com backslash membership. Even with a basic free membership, you can register for our amazing clinics and webinars, watch training videos, engage in our articles, share your horse stories, and much more. You'll find it all at AmazingHorseCountry.com. Oh, before you go, why not take a couple seconds and give us a five-star rating on whatever podcatcher you're using? We'd love your feedback. Until next time, my friends, happy trails.